Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 13 of The Middle Temple Murder by J.S. Fletcher This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Under Suspicion A distinct, uncontrollable murmur of surprise ran round the packed court, as this man in the witness-box gave this answer. It signified many things. That there were people present who had expected some such dramatic development. That there were others present who had not. That the answer itself was only a prelude to further developments. And Spargo, looking narrowly about him, saw that the answer had aroused different feelings in Aylmore's two daughters. The elder one had dropped her face until it was quite hidden. The younger was sitting bolt upright, staring at her father in utter and genuine bewilderment. And, for the first time, Aylmore made no response to her. But the course of things was going steadily forward. There was no stopping the Treasury Council now. He was going to get at some truth in his own merciless fashion. He had exchanged one glance with the coroner, had whispered a word to the solicitor who sat close by him, and now he turned again to the witness. "'So you know that gentleman, make sure now, as Mr. Anderson, an inmate of the temple?' "'Yes, sir.' "'You don't know him by any other name?' "'No, sir, I don't.' "'How long have you known him by that name?' i should say two or three years sir see him go in and out regularly no sir not regularly how often then now and then sir perhaps once a week tell us what you know of mr anderson's goings in and out well sir i might see him two nights running then i mightn't see him again for perhaps a week or two irregularly as you might say sir you say nights do i understand that you never see mr anderson except at night yes sir i've never seen him except at night always about the same time sir 
what time just about midnight sir very well do you remember the midnight of june the twenty-first to twenty-second i do sir did you see mr anderson enter then yes sir just after twelve was he alone no sir there was another gentleman with him remember anything about that other gentleman nothing sir except that i noticed as they walked through that the other gentleman had grey clothes on had grey clothes on you didn't see his face not to remember it sir i don't remember anything but what i've told you sir that is that the other gentleman wore a grey suit where did mr anderson and this gentleman in the grey suit go when they'd passed through straight up the lane sir do you know where mr anderson's rooms in the temple are not exactly sir but i understood in fountain court now on that night in question did mr anderson leave again by your lodge no sir you heard of the discovery of the body of a dead man in middle temple lane next morning i did sir did you connect that man with the gentleman in the grey suit no sir i didn't it never occurred to me a lot of the gentlemen who live in the temple bring friends in late of nights i never gave the matter any particular thought never mentioned it to anybody until now when you were sent for to come here no sir never to anybody and you have never known the gentleman standing there as anybody but mr anderson no sir never heard any other name but anderson the coroner glanced at the counsel i think this may be a convenient opportunity for mr aylmore to give the explanation he offered a few minutes ago he said do you suggest anything i suggest sir that if mr aylmore desires to give any explanation he should return to the witness-box and submit himself to examination again on his oath replied the counsel the matter is in your hands the coroner turned to aylmore do you object to that he asked aylmore stepped boldly forward and into the box i object to nothing he said in clear tones except to being asked to reply to questions about matters of the past which have not and cannot have anything to do with this case ask me what questions you like arising out of the evidence of the last two witnesses and i will answer them so far as i see myself justified in doing so ask me questions about matters of twenty years ago and i shall answer them or not as i see fit and i may as well say that i will take all the consequences of my silence or my speech the treasury counsel rose again very well mr aylmore he said i will put certain questions to you you heard the evidence of david lyell i did was that quite true as regards yourself quite true absolutely true and you heard that of the last witness was that also true equally true then you admit that the evidence you gave this morning before these witnesses came on the scene was not true no i do not most emphatically i do not it was true true you told me on oath that you parted from john marbury on waterloo bridge pardon me i said nothing of the sort i said that from the anglo-orient hotel we strolled across waterloo bridge and that shortly afterwards we parted 
I did not say where we parted. I see there is a shorthand writer here who is taking everything down. Ask him if that is not exactly what I said. A reference to the stenographer proved Aylmore to be right, and the Treasury Council showed plain annoyance. Well, at any rate, you so phrased your answer that nine persons out of ten would have understood that you parted from Marbury in the open streets after crossing Waterloo Bridge, he said. Now... Aylmore smiled. I am not responsible for the understanding of nine people out of ten any more than I am for your understanding, he said, with a sneer. I said what I now repeat. Marbury and I walked across Waterloo Bridge, and shortly afterwards we parted. I told you the truth. Indeed. Perhaps you will continue to tell us the truth, since you have admitted that the evidence of the last two witnesses is absolutely correct. Perhaps you will tell us exactly where you and Marbury did part. I will, willingly. We parted at the door of my chambers in Fountain Court. Then, to reiterate, it was you who took Marbury into the temple that night. It was certainly I who took Marbury into the temple that night. There was another murmur amongst the crowded benches. Here, at any rate, was fact solid, substantial fact, and Spargo began to see a possible course of events which he had not anticipated. "'That is a candid admission, Mr. Aylmore. I suppose you see a certain danger to yourself in making it?' "'I need not say whether I do or I do not. I have made it.' "'Very good. Why did you not make it before?' "'For my own reasons.' I told you as much as I considered necessary for the purpose of this inquiry. I have virtually altered nothing now. I asked to be allowed to make a statement, to give an explanation, as soon as Mr. Lyell had left this box. I was not allowed to do so. I am willing to make it now. Make it, then. It is simply this, said Aylmore, turning to the coroner. I have found it convenient, during the past three years, to rent a simple set of chambers in the temple, where I could occasionally, very occasionally as a rule, go late at night. I also found it convenient, for my own reasons, with which I think no one has anything to do, to rent those chambers under the name of Mr. Anderson. It was to my chambers that Marbury accompanied me for a few moments on the midnight with which we are dealing. He was not in them more than five minutes at the very outside. I parted from him at my outer door, and I understood that he would leave the temple by the way we had entered, and would drive or walk straight back to his hotel. That is the whole truth. I wish to add that I ought perhaps to have told all this at first. I had reasons for not doing so. I told what I considered necessary, that I parted from Marbury, leaving him well and alive soon after midnight. What reasons were or are they which prevented you from telling all this at first? asked the Treasury Council. Reasons which are private to me. Will you tell them to the court? No. Then will you tell us why Marbury went with you to the chambers in Fountain Court, which you tenant under the name of Anderson? Yes, to fetch a document which I had in my keeping, and had kept for him for twenty years or more. A document of importance? Of very great importance. 
he would have had it on him when he was as we believe he was murdered and robbed he had it on him when he left me will you tell us what it was certainly not in fact you won't tell us any more than you choose to tell i have told you all i can tell of the events of that night then i am going to ask you a very pertinent question is it not a fact that you know a great deal more about john marbury than you have told this court that i shall not answer is it not a fact that you could if you would tell this court more about john marbury and your acquaintanceship with him twenty years ago i also decline to answer that the treasury counsel made a little movement of his shoulders and turned to the coroner i should suggest sir that you adjourn this inquiry he said quietly for a week assented the coroner turning to the jury the crowd surged out of the court chattering murmuring exclaiming spectators witnesses jurymen reporters legal folk police folk all mixed up together and spargo elbowing his own way out and busily reckoning up the value of the new complexions put on everything by the day's work suddenly felt a hand laid on his arm turning he found himself gazing at jesse aylmore End of chapter 13chapter fourteen of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter fourteen the silver ticket with a sudden instinct of protection spargo quickly drew the girl aside from the struggling crowd and within a moment had led her into a quiet by-street he looked down at her as she stood recovering her breath yes he said quietly Jessie Aylmore looked up at him, smiling faintly. "'I want to speak to you,' she said. "'I must speak to you.' "'Yes,' said Spargo. "'But the others, your sister, Breton.' "'I left them on purpose to speak to you,' she answered. "'They knew I did. "'I am well accustomed to looking after myself.' Spargo moved down the by-street, motioning his companion to move with him tea he said is what you want i know a queer old-fashioned place close by here where you can get the best china tea in london come and have some jessie aylmore smiled and followed her guide obediently and spargo said nothing marching stolidly along with his thumbs in his waistcoat pockets his fingers playing soundless tunes outside until he had installed himself and his companion in a quiet nook in the old tea-house he had told her of and had given an order for tea and hot tea-cakes to a waitress who evidently knew him then he turned to her you want he said to talk to me about your father yes she answered i do why asked spargo the girl gave him a searching look ronald breton says you're the man who's written all those special articles in the watchman about the marbury case she answered are you i am said spargo then you're a man of great influence she went on you can stir the public mind mr spargo what are you going to write about my father and today's proceedings 
Spargo signed to her to pour out the tea which had just arrived. He seized without ceremony upon a piece of the hot-buttered tea-cake, and bit a great lump out of it. "'Frankly,' he mumbled, speaking with his mouth full, "'frankly, I don't know. I don't know yet. But I'll tell you this. It's best to be candid. I shouldn't allow myself to be prejudiced or biased in making up my conclusions by anything that you may say to me. Understand?' Jessie Aylmore took a sudden liking to Spargo because of the unconventionality and brusqueness of his manners. "'I'm not wanting to prejudice or bias you,' she said. "'All I want is that you should be very sure before you say anything.' "'I'll be sure,' said Spargo. "'Don't bother. Is the tea all right?' "'Beautiful,' she answered, with a smile that made Spargo look at her again. "'Delightful!' "'Mr. Spargo, tell me, what did you think about—about what just happened?' Spargo, regardless of the fact that his fingers were liberally ornamented with butter, lifted a hand and rubbed his always untidy hair. Then he ate more tea-cake and gulped more tea. "'Look here,' he said suddenly. "'I'm no great hand at talking.' I can write pretty decently when I've a good story to tell, but I don't talk an awful lot because I can never express what I mean unless I've got a pen in my hand. Frankly, I find it hard to tell you what I think. When I write my article this evening, I'll get all these things marshalled in proper form, and I shall write clearly about them. But I'll tell you one thing I do think. I wish your father had made a clean breast of things to me at first, when he gave me that interview or had told everything when he first went into that box. "'Why?' she asked. "'Because he's now set up an atmosphere of doubt and suspicion around himself. "'People'll think—heaven knows what they'll think. "'They already know that he knows more about Marbury than he'll tell, that—but does he?' she interrupted quickly. "'Do you think he does?' "'Yes,' said Spargo, with emphasis. "'I do.' a lot more if he had only been explicit at first however he wasn't now it's done as things stand look here does it strike you that your father is in a very serious position serious she exclaimed dangerous here's the fact he's admitted that he took marbury to his rooms in the temple that midnight well, next morning Marbury's found robbed and murdered in an entry, not fifty yards off. Does anybody suppose that my father would murder him for the sake of robbing him of whatever he had on him? She laughed scornfully. My father is a very wealthy man, Mr. Spargo. Maybe, answered Spargo, but millionaires have been known to murder men who held secrets. Secrets, she exclaimed. "'Have some more tea,' said Spargo, nodding at the teapot. "'Look here. This way it is. "'The theory that people, some people, will build up, "'I won't say that it hasn't suggested itself to me, "'is this. There's some mystery about the relationship, "'acquaintanceship, connection, call it what you like, "'of your father and Marbury twenty-odd years ago. Must be. There's some mystery about your father's life twenty-odd years ago. Must be, or else he'd have answered those questions. Very well. Ha-ha, says the general public. 
now we have it marbury says the general public was a man who had a hold on aylmore he turned up aylmore trapped him into the temple killed him to preserve his own secret and robbed him of all he had on him as a blind eh people will say that she exclaimed cocksure they're saying it heard half a dozen of em say it in more or less elegant fashion as i came out of that court of course they'll say it why what else could they say for a moment jessie aylmore sat looking silently into her teacup then she turned her eyes on spargo who immediately manifested a new interest in what remained of the tea-cakes is that what you're going to say in your article to-night she asked quietly no replied spargo promptly it isn't i'm going to sit on the fence to-night besides the case is sub judice all i'm going to do is to tell in my way what took place at the inquest the girl impulsively put her hand across the table and laid it on spargo's big fist is it what you think she asked in a low voice honour bright no exclaimed spargo it isn't it isn't i don't think it i think there's a most extraordinary mystery at the bottom of marbury's death and i think your father knows an enormous lot about marbury that he won't tell but i'm certain sure that he neither killed marbury nor knows anything whatever about his death and i'm out to clear this mystery up and mean to do it nothing'll make me more glad than to clear your father i say do have some more tea-cake we'll have fresh ones and fresh tea no thank you she said smiling and thank you for what you've just said i'm going now mr spargo you've done me good oh rot exclaimed spargo nothing nothing i've just told you what i'm thinking you must go he saw her into a taxicab presently and when she had gone stood vacantly staring after the cab until a hand clapped him smartly on the shoulder turning he found rathbury grinning at him all right mr spargo i saw you he said well it's a pleasant change to squire young ladies after being all day in that court look here are you going to start your writing just now i'm not going to start my writing as you call it until after i've dined at seven o'clock and given myself time to digest my modest dinner answered spargo what is it come back with me and have another look at that blessed leather box said rathbury i've got it in my room and i'd like to examine it for myself come on the thing's empty said spargo there might be a false bottom in it remarked rathbury one never knows here jump into this he pushed spargo into a passing taxicab and following bade the driver go straight to the yard arrived there he locked spargo and himself into the drab-visaged room in which the journalist had seen him before what do you think of today's doings, spargo he asked as he proceeded to unlock a cupboard i think said spargo that some of you fellows must have had your ears set to tingling that's so assented rathbury of course the next thing'll be to find out all about the mr aylmore of twenty years since when a man won't tell you where he lived twenty years ago what he was exactly doing what his precise relationship with another man was why then you've just got to find out eh 
oh some of our fellows are at work on the life history of stephen aylmore esquire m p already you bet well now spargo here's the famous box the detective brought the old leather case out of the cupboard in which he had been searching and placed it on the desk spargo threw back the lid and looked inside measuring the inner capacity against the exterior lines no false bottom in that rathbury he said there's just the outer leather case and the inner lining of this old bed-hanging stuff and that's all there's no room for any false bottom or anything of that sort do you see rathbury also sized up the box's capacity looks like it he said disappointedly well what about the lid then i remember there was an old box like this in my grandmother's farmhouse where i was reared there was a pocket in the lid let's see if there's anything of the sort here he threw the lid back and began to poke about the lining of it with the tips of his fingers and presently he turned to his companion with a sharp exclamation by george spargo he said i don't know about any pocket but there's something under this lining feels like here you feel there and there spargo put a finger on the places indicated yes that's so he agreed feels like two cards a large and a small one and the small one's harder than the other better cut that lining out rathbury that remarked rathbury producing a penknife is just what i'm going to do we'll cut along this seam he ripped the lining carefully open along the upper part of the lining of the lid and looking into the pocket thus made drew out two objects which he dropped on his blotting pad a child's photograph he said glancing at one of them but what on earth is that the object to which he pointed was a small oblong piece of thin much worn silver about the size of a railway ticket on one side of it was what seemed to be a heraldic device or coat of arms almost obliterated by rubbing on the other similarly worn down by friction was the figure of a horse that's a curious object remarked spargo picking it up i never saw anything like that before what can it be don't know i never saw anything of the sort either said rathbury some old token i should say now this photo ah you see the photographer's name and address have been torn away or broken off there's nothing left but just two letters of what's apparently been the name of the town see e r that's all there is portrait of a baby eh spargo gave what might have been called in anybody else but him a casual glance at the baby's portrait he picked up the silver ticket again and turned it over and over look here rathbury he said let me take this silver thing i know where i can find out what it is at least i think i do all right agreed the detective but take the greatest care of it and don't tell a soul that we found it in this box you know no connection with the marbury case spargo remember all right said spargo trust me he put the silver ticket in his pocket and went back to the office wondering about this singular find and when he had written his article that evening and seen a proof of it spargo went into fleet street intent on seeking peculiar information 
End of chapter 14《Only certain folk knew of it. It was, of course, a club. Otherwise, it would not have been what it was. It is the simplest thing in life, in England, at any rate, to form a club of congenial spirits. You get so many of your choice friends and acquaintances to gather round you. You register yourselves under a name of your own choosing. You take a house and furnish it according to your means and your taste. You comply with the very easy letter of the law and there you are. Keep within that easy letter, and you can do what you please on your own premises. It is much more agreeable to have a small paradise of your own of this description than to lounge about Fleet Street bars. The particular club to which Spargo bent his steps was called the Octonumenoi. Who evolved this extraordinary combination of Latin and Greek was a dark mystery. There it was, however, on a tiny brass plate you once reached the portals. The portals were gained by devious ways. You turned out of Fleet Street by an alley so narrow that it seemed as if you might suddenly find yourself squeezed between the ancient walls. Then you suddenly dived down another alley and found yourself in a small court, with high walls around you and a smell of printer's ink in your nose and a whirring of printing presses in your ears. You made another dive into a dark entry, much encumbered by bales of paper, crates of printing material, jars of printing ink. After falling over a few of these, you struck an ancient flight of stairs and went up past various landings, always travelling in a state of gloom and fear. After a lot of twisting and turning, you came to the very top of the house and found it heavily curtained off. You lifted a curtain and found yourself in a small entresol, somewhat artistically painted, the whole and sole work of an artistic member who came one day with a formidable array of lumber and paint-pots, and worked his will on the ancient wood. Then you saw the brass plate and its fearful name, and beneath it the formal legal notice that this club was duly registered and so on, and if you were a member, you went in, and if you weren't a member, you tinkled an electric bell and asked to see a member, if you knew one. Spargo was not a member, but he knew many members, and he tinkled the bell, and asked the boy who answered it for Mr. Starkey. Mr. Starkey, a young gentleman with the biceps of a prize-fighter, and a head of curly hair that would have done credit to Antinous, came forth in due course, and shook Spargo by the hand until his teeth rattled. "'Had we known you were coming,' said Mr. Starkey, "'we'd have had a brass band on the stairs.' "'I want to come in,' remarked Spargo. "'Sure,' said Mr. Starkey. "'That's what you've come for.' "'Well, stand out of the way, then, and let's get in,' said Spargo. "'Look here,' he continued, when they had penetrated into a small vestibule. "'Doesn't old Crowfoot turn in here about this time every night?' "'Every night is true as the clock, my son Spargo. "'Crowfoot puts his nose in at precisely eleven. 
having by that time finished that daily column wherein he informs a section of the populace as to the prospects of their spotting a winner to-morrow answered mr starkey it's five minutes to his hour now come in and drink till he comes want him a word with him answered spargo a mere word or two he followed starkey into a room which was so filled with smoke and sound that for a moment it was impossible to either see or hear but the smoke was gradually making itself into a canopy and beneath the canopy spargo made out various groups of men of all ages sitting around small tables smoking and drinking and all talking as if the great object of their lives was to get as many words as possible out of their mouths in the shortest possible time in the further corner was a small bar starkey pulled spargo up to it name it my son commanded starkey try the octonumenoi very extra special two of em dick come to beg to be a member spargo i'll think about being a member of this ante-room of the infernal regions when you start a ventilating fan and provide members with a route map of the way from fleet street answered spargo taking his glass phew what an atmosphere we're considering a ventilating fan said starkey i'm on the house committee now and i brought that very matter up at our last meeting but templeson of the bulletin you know templeson he says what we want is a wine-cooler to stand under that sideboard says no club is proper without a wine-cooler and that he knows a chap second-hand dealer don't you know what has a beauty to dispose of in old sheffield plate now if you were on our house committee spargo old man would you go in for the wine-cooler or for the ventilating fan you see there is crowfoot said spargo shout him over here starkey before anybody else collars him through the door by which spargo had entered a few minutes previously came a man who stood for a moment blinking at the smoke and the lights he was a tall elderly man with a figure and bearing of a soldier a big sweeping moustache stood well out against a square-cut jaw and beneath a prominent nose a pair of keen blue eyes looked out from beneath a tousled mass of crinkled hair he wore neither hat nor cap his attire was a carelessly put-on norfolk suit of brown tweed he looked half unkempt half groomed but knotted at the collar of his flannel shirt were the colours of one of the most famous and exclusive cricket clubs in the world and everybody knew that in his day their wearer had been a mighty figure in the public eye hi crowfoot shouted starkey among the din and babble crowfoot crowfoot come over here there's a chap dying to see you yes that's the way to get him isn't it said spargo here i'll get him myself he went across the room and accosted the old sporting journalist i want a quiet word with you he said this place is like a pandemonium crowfoot led the way into a side alcove and ordered a drink always is this time he said yawning but it's companionable what is it spargo spargo took a pull at the glass which he had carried with him i should say he said that you know as much about sporting matters as any man writing about em well i think you might say it with truth answered crowfoot and old sporting matters said spargo yes and old sporting matters replied the other with a sudden flash of the eye 
not that they greatly interest the modern generation you know well there's something that's interesting me greatly just now anyway said spargo and i believe it's got to do with old sporting affairs and i came to you for information about it believing you to be the only man i know of that could tell anything yes what is it asked crowfoot spargo drew out an envelope and took from it the carefully wrapped up silver ticket he took off the wrappings and laid the ticket on crowfoot's outstretched palm can you tell me what that is he asked another sudden flash came into the old sportsman's eyes he eagerly turned the silver ticket over god bless my soul he exclaimed where did you get this never mind just now replied spargo you know what it is certainly i know what it is but dad i've not seen one of these things for lord knows how many years makes me feel something like a young un again said crowfoot quite a young un but what is it asked spargo crowfoot turned the ticket over showing the side on which the heraldic device was almost worn away it's one of the original silver stand tickets of the old racecourse at market milcaster answered crowfoot that's what it is one of the old original silver stand tickets there are the arms of market milcaster you see nearly worn away by much rubbing there on the obverse is the figure of a running horse oh yes that's what it is bless me most interesting where's market milcaster inquired spargo don't know it market milcaster replied crowfoot still turning the silver ticket over and over is what the topographers call a decayed town in elmshire it has steadily decayed since the river that led to it got gradually silted up there used to be a famous race meeting there in june every year it's nearly forty years since that meeting fell through i went to it often when i was a lad often and you say that's a ticket for the stand asked spargo this is one of fifty silver tickets or passes or whatever you like to call em which were given by the race committee to fifty burgesses of the town answered crowfoot it was i remember considered a great privilege to possess a silver ticket it admitted its possessor for life mind you to the stand the paddocks the ring anywhere it also gave him a place at the annual race dinner where on earth did you get this spargo spargo took the ticket and carefully rewrapped it this time putting it in his purse i'm awfully obliged to you crowfoot he said the fact is i can't tell you where i got it just now but i'll promise you that i will tell you and all about it too as soon as my tongue's free to do so a mystery eh suggested crowfoot considerable answered spargo don't mention to any one that i showed it to you you shall know everything eventually all right my boy all right said crowfoot odd how things turn up isn't it now i'll wager anything that there aren't half a dozen of these old things outside market milcaster itself as i said there were only fifty and they were all in possession of burgesses they were so much thought of that they were taken great care of i've been in market milcaster myself since the races were given up and i've seen these tickets carefully framed and hung over mantelpieces oh yes spargo caught it a notion how do you get to market milcaster he asked paddington 
replied Crowfoot. It's a goodish way. I wonder, said Spargo, if there's any old sporting man there who would remember things. Anything about this ticket, for instance. Old sporting man, exclaimed Crowfoot. Egad! But no, he must be dead. Anyhow, if he isn't dead, he must be a veritable patriarch. Old Ben Quarterpage. He was an auctioneer in the town, and a rare sportsman. I must go down there, said Spargo. I'll see if he's alive. Then if you go down, suggested Crowfoot, go to the old yellow dragon in the high street. It's a fine old place. Quarterpage's place of business and his private house were exactly opposite the dragon. But I'm afraid you'll find him dead. It's five and twenty years since I was in Market Milcaster, and he was an old bird then. Let's see now. If old Ben Quarterpage is alive, Spargo, he'll be ninety years of age. Well, I've known men of ninety who were spry enough, even in my bit of experience, said Spargo. I know one, now, my own grandfather. Well, the best of thanks, Crowfoot, and I'll tell you all about it some day. Have another drink? suggested Crowfoot. But Spargo excused himself. He was going back to the office, he said. He still had something to do. And he got himself away from the octonumenoi, in spite of Sparky, who wished to start a general debate on the wisest way of expending the club's ready money balance, and went back to the watchman. And there he sought the presence of the editor, and in spite of the fact that it was the busiest hour of the night, saw him, and remained closeted with him, for the extraordinary space of ten minutes. And after that, Spargo went home and fell into bed. But next morning, bright and early, he was on the departure platform at Paddington, suitcase in hand, and ticket in pocket for Market Milcaster, and in the course of that afternoon he found himself in an old-fashioned bedroom, looking out on Market Milcaster High Street. And there, right opposite him, he saw an ancient house, old brick, ivy-covered, with an office at its side, over the door of which was the name Benjamin Quarterpage. End of chapter 15「Chapter 16 of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 The Yellow Dragon Spargo, changing his clothes, washing away the dust of his journey in that old-fashioned lavender-scented bedroom, busied his mind in further speculations of his plan of campaign in Market Milcaster. He had no particularly clear plan. The one thing he was certain of was that in the old leather box which the man whom he knew as John Marbury had deposited with the London and Universal Safe Deposit Company, he and Rathbury had discovered one of the old silver tickets of Market Milcaster Racecourse, and that he, Spargo, had come to Market Milcaster, with the full approval of his editor, in an endeavour to trace it. How was he going to set about this difficult task? "'The first thing,' said Spargo to himself as he tied a new tie, "'is to have a look round. That'll be no long job.' for he had already seen as he approached the town, and as he drove from the station to the Yellow Dragon Hotel, that Market Milcaster was a very small place. 
it chiefly consisted of one long wide thoroughfare the high street with small streets leading from it on either side in the high street seemed to be everything that the town could show the ancient parish church the town hall the market cross the principal houses and shops the bridge beneath which ran the river whereupon ships had once come up to the town before its mouth four miles away became impassably silted up it was a bright clean little town but there were few signs of trade in it and spargo had been quick to notice that in the yellow dragon a big rambling old hostelry reminiscent of the old coaching days there seemed to be little doing he had eaten a bit of lunch in the coffee-room immediately on his arrival the coffee-room was big enough to accommodate a hundred and fifty people but beyond himself an old gentleman and his daughter evidently tourists two young men talking golf and a man who looked like an artist and an unmistakable honeymooning couple there was no one in it there was little traffic in the wide street beneath spargo's windows little passage of people to and fro on the sidewalks here a countryman drove a lazy cow as lazily along there a farmer in his light cart sat idly chatting with an aproned tradesman who had come out of his shop to talk to him over everything lay the quiet of the sunlight of the summer afternoon and through the open windows stole a faint sweet scent of the new-mown hay lying in the meadows outside the old houses veritable sleepy hollow mused spargo let's go down and see if there's anybody to talk to great scott to think that i was in the poisonous atmosphere of the octonumenoi only sixteen hours ago spargo after losing himself in various corridors and passages finally landed in the wide stone-paved hall of the old hotel and with a sure instinct turned into the bar parlour which he had noticed when he entered the place this was a roomy comfortable bow-windowed apartment looking out upon the high street and was furnished and ornamented with the usual appurtenances of country town hotels there were old chairs and tables and sideboards and cupboards which had certainly been made a century before and seemed likely to endure for a century or two longer there were old prints of the road and the chase and an old oil painting or two of red-faced gentlemen in pink coats there were foxes masks on the wall and a monster pike in a glass case on a side table there were ancient candlesticks on the mantelpiece and an antique snuff-box set between them also there was a small old-fashioned bar in a corner of the room and a new-fashioned young woman seated behind it who was yawning over a piece of fancy needlework and looked at spargo when he entered as andromeda may have looked at perseus when he made a rival at her rock and spargo treating himself to a suitable drink and choosing a cigar to accompany it noted the look and dropped into the nearest chair this he remarked eyeing the damsel with inquiry appears to me to be a very quiet place quiet exclaimed the lady quiet that continued spargo is precisely what i observed quiet i see that you agree with me you expressed your agreement with two shades of emphasis the surprised and the scornful we may conclude thus far that the place is undoubtedly quiet the damsel looked at spargo as if she considered him 
in the light of a new specimen, and picking up her needlework she quitted the bar, and coming out into the room took a chair near his own. "'It makes you thankful to see a funeral go by here,' she remarked. "'It's about all that one ever does see.' "'Are there many?' asked Spargo. "'Do the inhabitants die much of inanition?' The damsel gave Spargo another critical inspection. "'Oh, you're joking,' she said. "'It's well you can. Nothing ever happens here. This place is a back number.' "'Even the back numbers make pleasant reading at times,' murmured Spargo. "'And the backwaters of life are refreshing. Nothing doing in this town, then,' he added in a louder voice. "'Nothing,' replied his companion. "'It's fast asleep.' I came here from Birmingham, and I didn't know what I was coming to. In Birmingham you see as many people in ten minutes as you see here in ten months. Ah, said Spargo, what you are suffering from is dullness. You must have an antidote. Dullness, exclaimed the damsel. That's the right word for Market Milcaster. There's just a few regular old customers dropping here of a morning between eleven and one. A stray caller looks in, perhaps during the afternoon. Then at night a lot of old fogies sit round that end of the room and talk about old times. Old times, indeed. What they want in Market Milcaster is new times. Spargo pricked up his ears. Well, but it's rather interesting to hear old fogies talk about old times, he said. I love it. Then you can get as much of it as ever you want here, remarked the barmaid. Look in tonight any time after eight o'clock, and if you don't know more about the history of Market Milcaster by ten than you did when you sat down, you must be deaf. There are some old gentlemen dropping here every night, regular as clockwork, who seem to feel that they couldn't go to bed unless they told each other stories about old days, which I should think they've heard a thousand times already. Very old men? asked Spargo. Methuselahs, replied the lady. "'There's old Mr. Quarterpage, across the way there, the auctioneer, "'though he doesn't do any business now. "'They say he's ninety, though I'm sure you wouldn't take him for more than seventy. "'And there's Mr. Lummis, further down the street. He's eighty-one. "'And Mr. Skeen and Mr. Kay, they're regular patriarchs. "'I've sat here and listened to them till I believe I could write a history of Market Milcaster since the year one.' "'I can conceive of that as a pleasant and profitable occupation,' said Spargo. He chatted a while longer in a fashion calculated to cheer the barmaid's spirits, after which he went out and strolled around the town until seven o'clock, the dragon's hour for dinner. There were no more people in the big coffee-room than there had been at lunch, and Spargo was glad, when his solitary meal was over, to escape to the bar-parlour where he took his coffee in a corner near to that sacred part in which the old townsman had been reported to him to sit. "'And mind you don't sit in one of their chairs,' said the barmaid warningly. "'They all have their own special chairs and their special pipes there on that rack, "'and I suppose the ceiling would fall in if anybody touched pipe or chair. "'But you're all right there, and you'll hear all they've got to say.' "'To Spargo, who had never seen anything of the sort before, "'and who, twenty-four hours previously, would have believed the thing impossible,' The proceedings of that evening in the bar-parlour of the Yellow Dragon at Market Milcaster were like a sudden transference to the eighteenth century. Precisely as the clock struck eight, and a bell began to toll somewhere in the recesses of the high street, 
an old gentleman walked in and the barmaid catching spargo's eye gave him a glance which showed that the play was about to begin good evening mr kay said the barmaid you're first tonight evening said mr kay and took a seat scowled around him and became silent he was a tall lank old gentleman clad in rusty black clothes with a pointed collar sticking up on both sides of his fringe of grey whisker and a voluminous black neckcloth folded several times round his neck and by the expression of his countenance was inclined to look on life severely nobody been in yet asked mr kay no but here's mr lummis and mr skeen replied the barmaid two more old gentlemen entered the bar parlour of these one was a little dapper-figured man clad in clothes of an eminently sporting cut and a very loud pattern he sported a bright blue necktie a flower in his lapel and a tall white hat which he wore at a rakish angle the other was a big portly bearded man with a falstaffian swagger and a rakish eye who chaffed the barmaid as he entered and gave her a good-humoured chuck under the chin as he passed her these two also sank into chairs which seemed to have been specially designed to meet them and the stout man slapped the arms of his as familiarly as he had greeted the barmaid he looked at his two cronies well he said here's three of us and there's a symposium wait a bit wait a bit said the dapper little man grandpa'll be here in a minute we'll start fair the barmaid glanced out of the window there's mr quarterpage coming across the street now she announced shall i put the things on the table ay put them on my dear put them on commanded the fat man have all in readiness the barmaid thereupon placed a round table before the sacred chairs set out upon it a fine old punch-bowl and the various ingredients for making punch a box of cigars and an old leaden tobacco-box and she had just completed this interesting prelude to the evening's discourse when the door opened again and in walked one of the most remarkable old men spargo had ever seen and by this time knowing that this was the venerable mr benjamin quarterpage of whom crowfoot had told him he took good stock of the newcomer as he took his place amongst his friends who on their part received him with ebullitions of delight which were positively boyish mr quarterpage was a youthful buck of ninety a middle-sized sturdily built man straight as a dart still active of limb clear-eyed and strong of voice his clean-shaven old countenance was ruddy as a sun-warmed pippin his hair was still only silvered his hand was steady as a rock his clothes of buff-coloured whipcord were smart and jaunty his neckerchief as gay as if he had been going to a fair it seemed to spargo that mr quarterpage had a pretty long lease of life before him even at his age spargo in his corner sat fascinated while the old gentleman began their symposium another making five came in and joined them the five had the end of the bar parlour to themselves mr quarterpage made the punch with all due solemnity and ceremony when it was ladled out each man lighted his pipe or took a cigar and the tongues began to wag other folk came and went the old gentlemen were oblivious of anything but their own talk 
now and then a young gentleman of the town dropped in to take his modest half-pint of bitter beer and to dally in the presence of the barmaid such looked with awe at the patriarchs as for the patriarchs themselves they were lost in the past spargo began to understand what the damsel behind the bar meant when she said that she believed she could write a history of market milcaster since the year one after discussing the weather the local events of the day and various personal matters the old fellows got to reminiscences of the past telling tale after tale recalling incident upon incident of long years before at last they turned to memories of racing days at market milcaster and at that spargo determined on a bold stroke now was the time to get some information taking the silver ticket from his purse he laid it the heraldic device uppermost on the palm of his hand and approaching the group with a polite bow said quietly gentlemen can any of you tell me anything about that End of chapter 16chapter seventeen of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seventeen mr quarterpage harks back if spargo had upset the old gentleman's bowl of punch the second of the evening or had dropped an infernal machine in their midst he could scarcely have produced a more startling effect than that wrought upon them by his sudden production of the silver ticket their babble of conversation died out one of them dropped his pipe another took his cigar out of his mouth as if he had suddenly discovered that he was sucking a stick of poison all lifted astonished faces to the interrupter staring from him to the shining object exhibited in his outstretched palm from it back to him and at last mr quarterpage to whom spargo had more particularly addressed himself spoke pointing with great emprossement to the ticket young gentlemen he said in accents that seemed to spargo to tremble a little young gentlemen where did you get that you know what it is then asked spargo willing to dally a little with the matter you recognize it know it recognize it exclaimed mr quarterpage yes and so does every gentleman present and it is just because i see you are a stranger to this town that i ask you where you got it not i think young gentleman in this town no replied spargo certainly not in this town how should i get it in this town if i'm a stranger quite true quite true murmured mr quarterpage i cannot conceive how any person in the town who is in possession of one of those what shall we call them heirlooms yes heirlooms of antiquity could possibly be base enough to part with it therefore i ask again where did you get that young gentleman before i tell you that answered spargo who in answer to a silent sign from the fat man had drawn a chair amongst them perhaps you will tell me exactly what this is 
i see it to be a bit of old polished much worn silver having on the obverse the arms or heraldic bearings of somebody or something on the reverse the figure of a running horse but what is it the five old men all glanced at each other and made simultaneous grunts then mr quarterpage spoke it is one of the original fifty burgess tickets of market milcaster young sir which gave its holder special and greatly valued privileges in respect to attendance at our once famous race meeting now unfortunately a thing of the past he added fifty ay forty years ago to be in possession of one of those tickets was was a grand thing said one of the old gentlemen mr lummis is right said mr quarterpage it was a grand thing a very grand thing those tickets sir were treasured are treasured and yet you a stranger show us one you got it sir spargo saw that it was now necessary to cut matters short i found this ticket under mysterious circumstances in london he answered i want to trace it i want to know who its original owner was that is why i have come to market milcaster mr quarterpage slowly looked round the circle of faces wonderful he said wonderful he found this ticket one of our famous fifty in london and under mysterious circumstances he wants to trace it he wants to know to whom it belonged that is why he has come to market milcaster most extraordinary gentlemen i appeal to you if this is not the most extraordinary event that has happened in market milcaster for i don't know how many years there was a general murmur of assent and spargo found everybody looking at him as if he had just announced that he had come to buy the whole town but why he asked showing great surprise why why exclaimed mr quarterpage why he asks why because young gentleman it is the greatest surprise to me and to these friends of mine too every man jack of em to hear that any one of our fifty tickets ever passed out of the possession of any of the fifty families to whom they belonged and unless i am vastly greatly most unexplainably mistaken young sir you are not a member of any market milcaster family no i'm not admitted spargo and he was going to add that until the previous evening he had never even heard of market milcaster but he wisely refrained no i'm certainly not he added mr quarterpage waved his long pipe i believe he said i believe that if the evening were not drawing to a close it is already within a few minutes of our departure young gentleman i believe i say that if i had time i could from memory give the names of the fifty families who held those tickets when the race meeting came to an end i believe i could 
"'I'm sure you could,' asserted the little man in the loud suit. "'Never with such a memory as yours, never!' "'Especially for anything relating to the old racing matters,' said the fat man. "'Mr. Quarterpage is a walking encyclopedia.' "'My memory is good,' said Mr. Quarterpage. "'It's the greatest blessing I have in my declining years.' "'Yes, I am sure I could do that with a little thought. "'And what's more, nearly every one of those fifty families is still in the town, "'or if not in the town, close by it. "'Or if not close by it, I know where they are. "'Therefore I cannot make out how this young gentleman—' "'From London, did you say, sir?' "'From London,' answered Spargo. "'This young gentleman from London comes to be in possession—' "'of one of our tickets,' continued Mr. Quarterpage. "'It is wonderful. "'But I tell you what, young gentleman from London, "'if you will do me the honour to breakfast with me in the morning, sir, "'I will show you my racing books and papers, "'and we will speedily discover who the original holder of that ticket was. "'My name, sir, is Quarterpage, Benjamin Quarterpage, "'and I reside at at the ivy-covered house exactly opposite this inn, and my breakfast hour is nine o'clock sharp, and I shall bid you heartily welcome. Spargo made his best bow. Sir, he said, I am greatly obliged by your kind invitation, and I shall consider it an honour to wait upon you to the moment. Accordingly, at five minutes to nine next morning, Spargo found himself in an old-fashioned parlour, looking out upon a delightful garden, gay with summer flowers, and being introduced by Mr. Quarterpage, Sr., to Mr. Quarterpage, Jr., a pleasant gentleman of sixty, always referred to by his father as something quite juvenile, and to Miss Quarterpage, a young lady of something a little less elderly than her brother, and to a breakfast-table bounteously spread, with all the choice fare of the season. Mr. Quarterpage Sr. was as fresh and rosy as a cherub. It was a revelation to Spargo to encounter so old a man who was still in possession of such life and spirits, and of such a vigorous and healthy appetite. Naturally, the talk over the breakfast-table ran on Spargo's possession of the old silver ticket, upon which subject it was evident Mr. Quarterpage was still exercising his intellect. And Spargo, who had judged it well to enlighten his host as to who he was, and had exhibited a letter with which the editor of the Watchman had furnished him, told how, in the exercise of his journalistic duties, he had discovered the ticket in the lining of an old box. But he made no mention of the Marbury matter, being anxious to see whither Mr. Quarterpage's revelations would lead him. "'You have no idea, Mr. Spargo,' said the old gentleman, when breakfast was over. He and Spargo were closeted together in a little library, in which were abundant evidences of the host's taste in sporting matters. "'You have no idea of the value which was attached to the possession of one of those silver tickets. There is mine, as you see, securely framed,' and just as securely fastened to the wall. Those fifty silver tickets, my dear sir, were made when our old race meeting was initiated in the year 1781. They were made in the town by a local silversmith, 
whose great-great-grandson still carries on the business. The fifty were distributed amongst the fifty leading burgesses of the town, to be kept in their families for ever. Nobody ever anticipated in those days that our race-meeting would ever be discontinued. The ticket carried great privileges. It made its holder, and all members of his family, male and female, free of the stands, rings, and paddocks. It gave the holder himself and his eldest son, if of age, the right to a seat at our grand race banquet, at which, I may tell you, Mr. Spargo, royalty itself has been present in the good old days. Consequently, as you see, to be the holder of a silver ticket was to be somebody. "'And when the race-meeting fell through?' asked Spargo. "'What then?' "'Then, of course, the families who held the tickets "'looked upon them as heirlooms to be taken great care of,' "'replied Mr. Quarterpage. "'They were dealt with as I dealt with mine, "'framed on velvet and hung up, or locked away. "'I'm sure that anybody who had one took the greatest care of it. "'Now, I said last night over there at the Dragon,' "'that I could repeat the names of all the families who held these tickets. "'So I can. "'But here,' the old gentleman drew out a drawer "'and produced from it a parchment-bound book, "'which he handled with great reverence. "'Here is a little volume of my own handwriting, "'memoranda relating to Market Milcaster races, "'in which is a list of the original holders, "'together with another list showing who held the tickets "'when the races were given up.' "'I make bold to say, Mr. Spargo, that by going through the second list, "'I could trace every ticket, except the one you have in your purse.' "'Every one?' said Spargo, in some surprise. "'Every one, for as I told you,' continued Mr. Quarterpage, "'the families are either in the town— "'We're conservative people here in Market Milcaster, "'and we don't move far afield— "'or they're just outside the town.' Oh, they're not far away. I can't conceive how the ticket you have, and it's genuine enough, could ever get out of possession of one of these families, and... Perhaps, suggested Spargo, it never has been out of possession. I told you it was found in the lining of a box. That box belonged to a dead man. A dead man? exclaimed Mr. Quarterpage. "'Dead man? Who could—' "'Ah, perhaps. Perhaps I have an idea. Yes, an idea. I remember something now that I had never thought of.' The old gentleman unfastened the clasp of his parchment-bound book, and turned over its pages until he came to one whereon was a list of names. He pointed this out to Spargo. "'There is the list of holders of the silver tickets at the time the race-meetings came to an end,' he said. "'If you were acquainted with this town, you would know that those are the names of our best-known inhabitants. "'All, of course, Burgesses. "'There's mine, you see, Quarterpage. "'There's Lummis, there's Kay, there's Skeen, there's Templeby, the gentleman you saw last night. "'All good old town names. "'They all are on this list.' I know every family mentioned. The holders of that time are many of them dead, but their successors have the tickets. Yes, and now that I think of it, 
there's only one man who held a ticket when this list was made about whom i don't know anything at least anything recent the ticket mr spargo which you found must have been his but i thought i thought somebody else had it and this man sir who was he asked spargo intuitively conscious that he was coming to news is his name there the old man ran the tip of his finger down the list of names there it is he said john maitland spargo bent over the fine writing yes john maitland he observed and who was john maitland mr quarterpage shook his head he turned to another of the many drawers in an ancient bureau and began to search amongst a mass of old newspapers carefully sorted into small bundles and tied up if you had lived in market milcaster one and twenty years ago mr spargo he said you would have known who john maitland was for some time sir he was the best-known man in the place ay and in this corner of the world but ay here it is the newspaper of october the fifth eighteen ninety one now mr spargo you'll find in this old newspaper who john maitland was and all about him now i'll tell you what to do i've just got to go into my office for an hour to talk the day's business over with my son you take this newspaper out into the garden there with one of these cigars and read what you'll find in it and when you've read that we'll have some more talk spargo carried the old newspaper into the sunlit garden End of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 An Old Newspaper As soon as Spargo unfolded the paper, he saw what he wanted on the middle page, headed in two lines of big capitals. He lighted a cigar and settled down to read. Market Milcaster Quarter Sessions Trial of John Maitland the quarter sessions for the borough of market milcaster was held on wednesday last october the third eighteen ninety one in the town hall before the recorder henry john campernown esq k c who was accompanied on the bench by the worshipful the mayor of market milcaster alderman pettiford the vicar of market milcaster the reverend p b clubberton m a r d alderman banks j p alderman peters j p sir gervase racton j p colonel floodgate j p captain murrell j p and other magistrates and gentlemen there was a crowded attendance of the public in anticipation of the trial of john maitland ex-manager of the market milcaster bank and the reserved portions of the court were filled with the elite of the town and neighbourhood including a considerable number of ladies who manifested the greatest interest in the proceedings the recorder in charging the grand jury said he regretted that the very pleasant and gratifying experience which had been his upon the occasion of his last two official visits to market milcaster 
he referred to the fact that on both those occasions his friend the worshipful mayor had been able to present him with a pair of white gloves was not to be repeated on the present occasion it would be their sad and regrettable lot to have before them a fellow townsman whose family had for generations occupied a foremost position in the life of the borough that fellow townsman was charged with one of the most serious offences known to a commercial nation like ours the offence of embezzling the monies of the bank of which he had for many years been the trusted manager and with which he had been connected all his life since his school days he understood that the prisoner who would shortly be put before the court on his trial was about to plead guilty and there would accordingly be no need for him to direct the gentlemen of the grand jury on this matter what he had to say respecting the gravity and even enormity of the offence he would reserve the recorder then addressed himself to the grand jury on the merits of two minor cases which came before the court at a later period of the morning after which they retired and having formally returned a true bill against the prisoner and a petty jury chosen from well-known burgesses of the town having been duly sworn john maitland aged forty-two bank manager of the bank-house high street market milcaster was formally charged with embezzling on april twenty third eighteen ninety one the sum of four thousand eight hundred and seventy five pounds ten shillings and sixpence the monies of his employers the market milcaster banking company limited and converting the same to his own use the prisoner who appeared to feel his position most acutely and who looked very pale and much worn was represented by mr charles doolittle the well-known barrister of king's haven mr stevens casey appeared on behalf of the prosecution maitland upon being charged pleaded guilty mr stevens casey addressing the recorder said that without any desire to unduly press upon the prisoner who he ventured to think had taken a very wise course in pleading guilty to that particular count in the indictment with which he stood charged he felt bound in the interests of justice to set forth to the court some particulars of the defalcations which had arisen through the prisoner's much lamented dishonesty he proposed to offer a clear and succinct account of the matter the prisoner john maitland was the last of an old market milcaster family he was in fact he believed with the exception of his own infant son the very last of the race his father had been manager of the bank before him maitland himself had entered the service of the bank at the age of eighteen when he left the local grammar school he succeeded his father as manager at the age of thirty-two he had therefore occupied this highest position of trust for ten years his directors had the fullest confidence in him they relied on his honesty and his honour they gave him discretionary powers such as no bank manager probably ever enjoyed or held before in fact he was so trusted that he was to all intents and purposes the market milcaster banking company in other words he was allowed full control over everything and given full license to do what he liked whether the directors were wise in extending such liberty to even the most trusted servant it was not for him mr stevens to say it was some consolation under the circumstances to know that the loss would fall upon the directors inasmuch as they themselves held nearly the whole of the shares 
but he had to speak of the loss of the serious defalcations which maitland had committed the prisoner had wisely pleaded guilty to the first count of the indictment but there were no less than seventeen counts in the indictment he had pleaded guilty to embezzling a sum of four thousand eight hundred and seventy five pounds odd but the total amount of the defalcations comprised in the seventeen counts was no less it seemed a most amazing sum than two hundred and twenty one thousand five hundred and seventy three pounds eight shillings and sixpence there was the fact the banking company had been robbed of over two hundred thousand pounds by the prisoner in the dock before a mere accident the most trifling chance had revealed to the astounded directors that he was robbing them at all and the most serious feature of the whole case was that not one penny of this money had been or ever could be recovered he believed that the prisoner's learned counsel was about to urge upon the court that the prisoner himself had been tricked and deceived by another man unfortunately not before the court a man he understood also well known in market milcaster who was now dead and therefore could not be called but whether he was so tricked or deceived was no excuse for his clever and wholesale robbing of his employers he had thought it necessary to put these facts which would not be denied before the court in order that it might be known how heavy the defalcations really had been and that they should be considered in dealing with the prisoner the recorder asked if there was no possibility of recovering any part of the vast sum concerned mr stevens replied that they were informed that there was not the remotest chance the money it was said by prisoner and those acting on his behalf had utterly vanished with the death of the man to whom he had just made reference mr doolittle on behalf of the prisoner craved to address a few words to the court in mitigation of sentence he thanked mr stevens for the considerate and eminently dispassionate manner in which he had outlined the main facts of the case he had no desire to minimize the prisoner's guilt but on prisoner's behalf he desired to tell the true story as to how these things came to be until as recently as three years previously the prisoner had never made the slightest deviation from the straight path of integrity unfortunately for him and he believed for some others in market milcaster there came to the town three years before the present proceedings a man named chamberlain who commenced business in the high street as a stock and share broker a man of good business and the most plausible manners chamberlain attracted a good many people amongst them his unfortunate client it was a matter of common knowledge that chamberlain had induced numerous persons in market milcaster to enter into financial transactions with him it was a matter of common repute that those transactions had not always turned out well for chamberlain's clients unhappily for himself maitland had great faith in chamberlain he had begun to have transactions with him in a large way they had gone on and on until he was involved to vast amounts believing thoroughly in chamberlain and his methods he had entrusted him with very large sums of money the recorder interrupted mr doolittle at this point to ask if he was to understand that mr doolittle was referring to the prisoner's own money mr doolittle replied that he was afraid the large sums he referred to were the property of the bank but the prisoner had such belief in chamberlain that he firmly anticipated that all would be well and that these sums would be repaid 
and that a vast profit would result from their use. The recorder remarked that he supposed the prisoner intended to put the profit into his own pocket. Mr. Doolittle said that at any rate the prisoner assured him that of the two hundred and twenty thousand pounds which was in question, Chamberlain had had the immediate handling of at least two hundred thousand, and he, the prisoner, had not the ghost of a notion as to what Chamberlain had done with it. Unfortunately for everybody, for the bank, for some other people, and especially for his unhappy client, Chamberlain died, very suddenly, just as these proceedings were instituted, and so far it had been absolutely impossible to trace anything of the monies concerned. He had died under mysterious circumstances, and there was just as much mystery about his affairs. The recorder observed that he was still waiting to hear what Mr. Doolittle had to urge in mitigation of any sentence he, the recorder, might think fit to pass. Mr. Doolittle said that he would trouble the court with as few remarks as possible. All that he could urge on behalf of the unfortunate man in the dock was that until three years ago he had borne a most exemplary character, and had never committed a dishonest action. It had been his misfortune, his folly, to allow a plausible man to persuade him to these acts of dishonesty. That man had been called to another account, and the prisoner was left to bear the consequences of his association with him. It seemed as if Chamberlain had made away with the money for his own purposes, and it might be that it would yet be recovered. He would only ask the court to remember the prisoner's antecedents and his previous good conduct, and to bear in mind that whatever his near future might be, he was, in a commercial sense, ruined for life. The recorder in passing sentence said that he had not heard a single word of valid excuse for Maitland's conduct. Such dishonesty must be punished in the most severe fashion, and the prisoner must go to penal servitude for ten years. Maitland, who heard the sentence unmoved, was removed from the town later in the day to the county jail at Saxchester. Spargo read all this swiftly, then went over it again, noting certain points. At last he folded up the newspaper and turned to the house, to see old Quarterpage beckoning to him from the library window. End of chapter 18「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.